Hey, this is Matt Markin, and we're now at episode 46 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In episode 46, we chat with Melinda Anderson from the Nakata Executive Office, TJ Bokash from Johns Hopkins University, and Josh Lineroad from Lake Erie College. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. Without further ado, here's the episode. Welcome again to episode 46 of the Adventures and Advising podcast. It's a stacked episode, but before we get to our first guest, if you're thinking about attending one or more of the 10 Nakata Region Conferences in 2022, proposal submissions are now open. Now, depending on the region, that deadline to submit might be November 17th or December 15th. Check out the link in the show notes for more info, but get that proposal submitted. We know you're doing some fantastic things at your institution. You have some amazing ideas. Get it written down and get it submitted as a proposal. We have three great interviews for you today, so let's not wait any longer. First up is Dr. Melinda Anderson from the Nakata Executive Office. We had Melinda on for our Global Advising Week episode back in May when she was just named the new Nakata Executive Director. Now that Melinda's been in the role for a few months, we have her back. Here we go. Well, we have a returning guest with us today, and that is none other than Dr. Melinda Anderson, the Executive Director of NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising. Last time we chatted with Dr. Anderson, it was episode 34, titled Recognizing Achievement and Impact. On that episode, it was a sort of a two-parter. We originally interviewed Melinda after we all found out she was voted in as the new NACADA president. And then maybe a week before the episode was to go live, we found out Melinda was actually going to be the new Executive Director of NACADA. So fun interviews, plural, to make that episode happen, but we're excited to have Melinda back now that she's been the executive director and chat with her some more. So Melinda, welcome back to Adventures in Advising. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. It's exciting to be back and so good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. And, you know, it's by the time this episode airs, it's going to be a little over three weeks since the end of the virtual and in-person annual Nakata conference that was hosted in Cincinnati. So my first question for you is, how's it been uh, being back at the in Manhattan and coming off the conference? How was the conference for you? Uh, the conference was it was it was thrilling. It was exciting. I know that everybody was so excited to be back and and to see each other. It had been about two years. You know, last year we did have a virtual conference experience, so it was just really good to just engage with your colleagues. But you know, we were virtual. And I think being in the same space and being able to see your colleagues and to meet new colleagues, um, it was just, you could just feel the excitement. Um, I know that people were just really thrilled to be in familiar spaces. I hope that that makes sense, right? So we did have people who had never been to an Akata conference before, and they were like, this is my first conference. This is really exciting. And then, you know, you had people who hadn't, you know, been there before, and they were just like, oh my gosh, this feels so normal to me to be back. You know, the pandemic has just really transformed the way that we think about our work. 
And so wanting to provide an experience where people felt like this is familiar, this is comfortable, but, you know, we had a hybrid format. And so that being a new experience for us to have a, an in-person in a hybrid format um, was new for us uh, in terms of organizing that. But I think we did a fantastic job in being able to provide two platforms um, for people to take advantage of. And that content is still available for 45 days uh, for everybody to be able to have access to. And so, you know, trying to to get that off, I think people did a brilliant job and we've learned a lot of lessons along the way that we'll be able to use to improve in Portland. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was telling Ryan Sheckle on our last episode that it didn't feel as weird being back. I, you know, it's like, how's it going to be? You know, we're, in, we're back two years later. We have some of the restrictions with COVID, but it felt like we're, you know, just continued on where we last left off. And it was nice seeing everyone in person instead of on a computer screen for the last two years. So a lot of great sessions and getting to see like people that I've considered my friends now in, in, in advising and in Nakata was so wonderful. And I guess going off of that, um, from what you've heard, um, even though it's been a few weeks, uh, has what's been the feeling, I guess, from attendees, uh, both in person and, and who attend a virtual about how they felt about the, the actual conference? Um, that's actually a really great question. In terms of, I think, when people were, you know, registering and getting prepared, I think you're right. You know, the idea of like, what is this conference experience going to be with COVID restrictions in place? You know, we put the health and safety in and in terms of people having to either submit vaccination uh, cards or take um, a COVID test before they, they entered um, the experience. But honestly, you know, that was a part of the registration process, part of the check-in process. You know, yes, people had to wear masks. You know, yes, we had social distancing, but I think you're right. Because you're doing that at home or you're doing that on your own campuses, because you're experiencing that in other spaces, it really just feel like, hey, this is, you know, a normal experience. I'm still seeing my friends. You know, the idea we had the, the bracelets where you could determine how much social distancing you want. Red, we said, you know, six feet. Yellow was, you know, elbows. And and then green was high fives. And so I think that being able to to, to to tell your peers exactly what your level of comfortability was, I think really made a difference. But I think in terms of the sessions and in terms of people getting what they needed and feeling not just inspired, but informed and feeling comfortable being able to return back to their campuses, you know, we're asking ourselves a lot of questions um, in terms of how do we continue to engage our students? What does support and holistic advising look like? What does our presence in terms of an advising organization mean now during the pandemic? You know, there's no post for us. You know, we're still supporting our students who may or may not be struggling. Uh, we're still supporting institutions that might be hurting from enrollment. You know, so when you think about the role that advisors play uh, at, you know, the two-year, four-year private, public, you know, there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered. And so coming and seeing your colleagues, yes, that's helpful, but people are there to get information. They're there to get research, scholarship, uh, and to engage differently in order to take really good information back. So providing that virtually and then being in person are just those two modalities in order to get the information that you need in order to be able to make a difference on your campus. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, especially, you know, you were you know, yes, we want to see our friends and, and have, have fun, but also we're trying to learn. And 
it's all about making those connections, right? And one great example, I think, is we were both sitting at a table for breakfast and randomly someone stops and asks, hey, can I, can I sit with you? And of course, you know, we sit there and do the whole, like, what's your name? What school are you from? Well, this is a person, uh, a provost from Wisconsin, and he starts talking about, this is the first Nakata conference, I believe he said, and that he mentions he recently hired someone from California, and it turned out I already knew who that person was. But then it led into a great conversation that I really got to witness you and this provost kind of really start talking about what academic advising really is and how it can improve at their campus. Um, we started talking about technology in, in advising. And it's like such a small world, but also you had this powerful conversation. And I just remember him saying, like, I just happen to now be at probably the best table because he got to interact with the executive director of Nakata and now kind of made a, a real connection. Yes. No, that is actually a really great point because that's exactly how it happens, right? You never know who you're sitting next to and you're having this powerful conversation that can really transform the way that you think about your work and the way that you think about how you're going to approach some of the either issues or concerns, or how do you take advantage of those opportunities when you get back to your campus and, you know, passing business cards or exchanging emails or connecting on our, our socio app is a way that a lot of people have continued to stay connected even after leaving the conference experience. And I know that we'll stay connected. Um, he's got a wonderful picture of what it is that he's trying to do on his campus. And he's so dedicated to student success. Uh, his campus is very lucky to have him. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Absolutely. And that's a shout out to uh, Dr. David Travis uh, over in Wisconsin. And who knows, maybe we might have uh, David on as a podcast guest soon. We'll see. Yes, I would love to do that. <laughs> and so I guess with a lot of the changes with the conference, having the virtual component, how do you think this impacts future conferences? Um, do you think virtual components here to stay? I know you can't make any uh, promises or direct answers, but I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I love that question. As we were going through the conference experience, we were really trying to gauge, you know, is this something that is a trend? Is it the way that we're solving a problem right now? Is this the way of the future? You know, when I talk to campuses now, a lot of people are telling me about how their virtual services are providing access and opportunities when you specifically talk about particular student populations, when we talk about adult learners, or just providing a safe space for students to have access to advisors where they wouldn't normally have the opportunity to have access to them, whether that's because they're working or I wouldn't normally have time to drive, find a parking space, you know, all those kinds of things, right, that come with complicating the idea of getting to your academic advisor. 
And so when we think about this hybrid dynamic, I really do see that it's it's the way of the future. I mean, when you think about virtual advising services, the access and equity standpoint that many of the campuses are looking at virtual services providing opportunities for, when we think about how, how do we um, support our, our global community when we talk about access, when we think about the format of a virtual experience and how we engage in a virtual format, we know that we have some work to do, but the access and the affordability points are things that we need to continue to explore and we need to figure out what does that mean for us as an association. But I definitely think that there's something that's something that's going to stay with us as we move forward. It was undeniable about how people felt, wow, I can still attend a conference even if I can't physically get there, if I have issues and I don't want to necessarily put my health at risk or when I think about senior level administrators, maybe there's content that I want to have access to, but I can't afford the time right now in this moment to have immediate access to what's going on. So when I think about some of the lessons that we've learned, it wasn't the idea that this won't work. It's how do we make this better? How do we provide different levels of content? Well, how do we provide maybe from in terms of how we deliver things live online? Or what do what does on demand look like in terms of um, when we make things available on the platform? So it was things like what are we tweaking more so than this isn't going to work? This just didn't make sense. And so I think we probably will see more of this format in the future. And when you look at our contemporary higher education associations, many of them did go to this hybrid model. And so just thinking about how do we make this even better? Um, is probably something that we will definitely keep in terms of how we look at um, our conferences in the future. Yeah, it's, you know, practice makes perfect. You know, we got a taste of it with the all virtual conference for 2020 and then now with the hybrid format. So, yeah, I mean, it can only go better from here, you know, making those tweaks and kind of reflecting back and see what went right, continue doing that, what maybe didn't go so right or what could be improved on, and then just making that better for the next conference. And I guess for anyone that might have missed your interview in episode 34, can you give us a, more of your background in higher ed and academic advising? Sure, I can do that, Matt. You know, I do recognize that, you know, when we're in this space, you know, it does feel very small at times where, you know, I, when I do run into somebody and I'm like, I know if I keep talking to you long enough, I know eventually I know somebody that knows somebody that knows somebody that knows you very similar to when we were sitting at that table with the provost. And it was just crazy, right? That you knew exactly who it is that he was talking about. And you're like, oh my gosh, I've worked with him. And, and it, so it was just amazing how sometimes that comes together. But I, I do recognize that maybe a lot of our members um, don't really fully know my background. And so, um, I would just like to share a little bit. When I think about my work, I'm very passionate about student success and the student experience. I like to say that I was born in student affairs and raised in academic affairs. Um, I came into this higher education space with a very strong lens in student affairs in terms of working in student activities in higher in residence life. And then I also worked in a department first for academic advising um, at an R1 uh, four-year um, institution, uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. 
And then from there, I worked at the community college. Uh, and then I realized that when I think about my work broadly, you know, the question a lot of professionals ask themselves is what kind of higher education environment do I want to work in? What, what is geared best towards my skill set and what kind of students do I want to serve and support? And so then I ended up working in a highly selective institution, uh, College of William and Mary, liberal arts. And it really did help me understand a lot about the way that we think about liberal arts education and helping students when they think about majors and careers aren't linear and what does it mean to have this broader perspective of education. And then that's where I, I realized I needed to get my doctorate degree. So I got my doctorate degree at the college, the College of William and Mary. And so that's where I received that. But then I became very passionate about pre-health and uh, advising. And then I, I took a position back at Virginia Commonwealth University for director of pre-health and pre-law advising. And then from there, I went to UNC Wilmington and was the director of university college because, of course, I was very passionate about that first year and second year advising experience. And then uh, was promoted to be an associate dean and then when you think about as an administrator, and I know a lot of people ask me that question of when do you know that you're ready to be, you know, from an advisor to be a director of advisor and moving up in management or being senior level administrator? For me, I think it was really this lens of when you say, I know that I love working with students and the higher up you go, the less you work with students and the more you work with policy and procedures and, and you do see more of the challenges and issues that either policy, because policy is a blunt instrument, right? It doesn't fix everything. And so then you're still looking at addressing issues and concerns. And so then I had an amazing opportunity to work at uh, the Elizabeth City State University. It's a small HBCU in um, Elizabeth City, uh, North, Carol uh, North Carolina. And so then from there is when I came into this position as executive director. And so I share all that because I think people don't understand that it was a, definitely a journey in terms of understanding how do you want to work, what makes sense for you as a professional, what environment do you find that your skill set's going to make most sense for. Um, and I had the ability to be connected with amazing mentors. I had amazing provosts. I had amazing deans. I had amazing colleagues that supported me along each step of my journey in terms of understanding how policy and procedures inform the way that we serve and support our students. Um, and it takes time in that oven to cook, if you know what I mean, to understand like before you need to move to the next step. Because sometimes people want to move so quickly, right? I want to be in charge. And I'm like, well, why do you want to be in charge? Is it because you want to influence or is it because you want to control? Because there's a difference. You, you want to control what? You know, is what I always tell people. What do you want to really control? And then what do you want to influence? Because you know that there's a better way to uh, build a mousetrap, if you will. Because ultimately, my goal has always been, what is the best way for us to serve students? And it's not because I always had the best ideas, but how do you bring people together in order to serve our students to the best of our ability and talents? I love students. I've always loved students in any capacity that I've worked. And so when I think about what we do in academic advising, when I think about the work that happens at institutions, this pandemic has really helped spotlight how critical our work is on campuses. Our students have been hurting in so many different ways and our ability to raise their voices to campus level administrators, to senior level administrators, 
is just amazing to me how we've been able to come together as a, a profession to say that we are pivotal and critical in that ability to take their voices and to lift them up. But then more importantly, we have the tools, we have the skill set, and we have the knowledge in the, in, in the backgrounds to be able to say this is the best way for us to create systems and to develop uh, processes in order to help support our students for them to be able to achieve their academic goals. Yeah, I think there's a talk story or webinar right there with all of that. And especially, should I move up? Should I not? When do I know? Am I trying to influence? Am I trying to control? Why do I want to be at a upper division, uh, upper level admin? And all I have to say really is like, never say never. I mean, a lot of the things that whether I've done in advising or in Nakata or my institution, I probably said, I don't, I'm never going to do that. And then I ended up doing it. And I'm like, well, never say never. You never know what's going to happen. But in our last interview, we asked about any goals you might have when you were starting or going to be starting as, as executive director of Nakata. And of course, you know, it was very fluid answer because you hadn't started yet. But now that you're in the role, maybe we can ask that question again. Uh, what, what would you say your goals are as executive director and maybe overall Nakata's goals moving forward to help academic advising? Yes. So the question that you're asking, let's see, I think I'm over 120 days, I think, so far in this role. Oh, I know you're you're laughing right now. I But I, I think the question is a really good one because it helps um, me focus. You know, my uh, desire to be in this position, like I was saying earlier, was not about controlling, right? It was about influencing and bringing people together because I care about our field. I care about our profession. I care about the scholarship that we develop. And so actually our board just released new strategic goals that are going to guide our association forward for the next five years. So I'm really excited that we were able to release that um, at our annual conference and a lot of those goals point to looking at a structural review of our association. The last time that our association was really evaluated and created a new structure was uh, over 20 years ago. And we did not have, you know, over 13,000 members. We were not global. We were, you know, so when you think about how we're currently structured and how we currently operate, we were not as large as we are today. And so we do need to take a look at that. So that's definitely one of our goals. Are we operating in the best structure as possible in order to do all the work that we know we need to do from a global perspective? Another one of our goals is looking at a global perspective. What does it mean to be global in this association? And are we doing what we need to do in order to make sure that we're including global perspectives, global knowledge? How are we informing and educating all of our members um, and then how are we being inclusive of our global members in the work that we're doing in Nakata? And then another piece around the scholarship and then in engaging in uh, external partnerships in terms of the work that we're doing. A lot of people are in the field of advising. When we talk about what does it mean? What does academic advising mean? How are you defining academic advising? You can see on certain campuses that advising is moving from either an, an academic affairs space to an enrollment management space to maybe a student affairs space. And so how are we engaging with uh, those partners who are in those spaces and then connecting with them in terms of what does it mean to 
assess academic advising goals? What does it mean to create academic advising systems? If you were like me growing up in student affairs, you're going to look to student affairs assessment tools. You're going to look to student, you see what I'm saying? If you're in enrollment management, you're going to be doing the same thing. And so how are we connecting with our our external partners and building those relationships. So when people are talking about academic advising, we're all on the same page in terms of understanding what academic advising is and what is the best way to support our students. And so those are probably three of the main areas that I would say most immediately that we're thinking about in terms of understanding how we're gonna be moving forward in the next couple of years. So, I mean, yes, it sounds like a lot of work, but I think it's very critical and necessary in terms of how we think about where Nakata is going and how we're growing and how we're moving. Um, and then we're all doing this still within a pandemic space. And so I'm just really proud of the work that our EO staff is doing. I'm really proud of the work that the board and council and our all three divisions, the region, um, AC, um, I'm sorry, advising communities and our administrative division is doing in terms of continuing to move the work forward because I know that our members are tired. They're tired of, you know, with the work that's happening on their campuses in terms of supporting students and then supporting just, you know, what's going on in, in their own homes. And then they still turn around and do great and brilliant work for Nakata. And so from the bottom of my heart, I just always want to thank everybody who continues to support the work uh, and the vision and the mission of our association, because many of our members, well, not many, all really are doing this because they're volunteering to support the work that we're doing. And I just, I'm just always in awe of how much they love this association. And I'm just very grateful and, th and thankful. And so just wanting to continue to keep our hearts raised in this work because it's critical for our students. Yeah, and I think, you know, with members continuously renewing their membership, you know, it's because they believe in academic advice and they believe in their students. They believe in Nakata, they believe in what Nakata can do with moving advising forward and helping them to bring things back to their institutions. But it's just like you're saying too, it's a global community. And I know some people still want to call it the uh, National Academic Advising Association. It's like, no, we are Nakata, the global community for academic advising. And it's not the national conference, it's the annual conference because we are global. We have partners everywhere. And one of the things, you know, and you were talking about kind of like how busy and how kind of tired advice professionals are. And one of the things we keep hearing is student retention, but then also a lot about advisor retention and that there's probably many, if not already, many who've left advising and higher ed altogether, whether that's due to being burnt out, dealing with policy changes at their institutions, realizing during the pandemic that they have other things they want to do in life. Have you heard that? And what do you think Nakata's role can be in that? I have heard that, unfortunately. When we think about, you know, this fatigue, when you think about all the changes that have been happening on campus, when you think about compassion fatigue, it would be probably one of the things that I speak on the most lately when I was being invited to campuses and doing keynotes on Zoom, you know, just talking about compassion fatigue not pouring from an empty cup, really just trying to lift people's spirits and talking about morale. I was seeing a lot of that. You know, It wasn't as if people didn't recognize that their institutions were saying, yes, thank you, I appreciate you, but it was the pace. 
working from home, I think that there was a lot of, I don't want to say misunderstanding. I, I think it was just this concept, right? That, oh, well, you're working from home, so you don't have to commute. You don't have to do this. But the dynamics of working from home and supporting your students, I know for me, myself, I didn't really think about the idea of having a Google cover for my phone. I was just trying to make sure that my students stay connected with me. So I just gave them my cell phone. And then the next thing you know, you're talking to your students on your cell phone, that kind of thing. And before we were able to get software to to call from our houses. And and so you just, you, you know, as an advisor, you just want to make sure that your students are OK. And so sometimes you can overcompensate and you can overdo it. Right. And so where are your breaks if you're working from home? you work and then you live and you live and you work. It's kind of like when you were, if you went to college and you worked in the residence hall and you lived in the residence hall and then you did your homework in your bed and you slept in your bed. It's like, there's no break, you know, like you're always in your bed. And so it was one of those moments where I think many of us just didn't really understand how do you manage work-life balance when you're always in the same space and how do you walk away from it? How do you stop thinking about it? You know, I, even with the pandemic, people were still living in tragedy. People were still losing their loved ones. And maybe it wasn't because of COVID, but maybe, you know, I still lost my grandmother. I still lost my mother or I still lost my child or I still lost my job. And, you know, and you're dealing with the stresses of money and finances. And then you want to talk about registration. You You know what I mean? Like you just have to pause sometimes and then you're taking all that in. And so I will agree with you that I I did hear a lot from advisors about like, how do I continue to do this work? I'm just emotionally spent and I'm I'm exhausted. I think that the way that we support that at um, in the association and, you know, beyond the idea of who we have presentations and workshops through the conference experiences and, you know, webinars that talk about compassion fatigue and, and how do we do that? When I think about advisors, for example, that may be furloughed or laid off or, you know, what are the ways that we can connect with those who may be looking to retool their resumes, looking for people to help them think about maybe if I I took a break, what does this look like for me? Maybe I need to be rejuvenated in some way. I think that there is an opportunity for us to engage with advisors or senior level administrators or directors of advising shops that are really looking for ways to um, help combat uh, compassion fatigue. I know that that's really been kind of the key topics that I've been talking about lately when I've been invited to. So I think that there is a role that we can play. When I think about that from a systems level perspective, you know, how do we engage and have that conversation? When we did our community forum, that was some parts of the conversation. So I know that our goal uh, in the next weeks or so is to uh, put out a communication to the association talking about the themes and topics and then inviting further conversations of where we're developing. Is that a workshop? Is that something that we do online? What would be the best way for us to continue to support our advisors who are still struggling? When we think about why people are wanting to leave the field, are there ways that we can help to engage with senior level administrators that may or may not understand um, all the things that our advisors are, are going through right now in terms of how do we help lighten the load and what does that look like? And so I think that there are some things that we need to uh, engage with, uh, Matt. I would agree that there there is something that we can do because we're doing it on such micro scales. What would the macro level look like? 
um, because there's a, a lot going on. And we, uh, I don't want us to lose really great professionals just because they're just tired and they may need a break. And, and, and when I mean a break, I, I, I guess in my mind, I'm not saying the, oh, I just might need a day off, right? I need a mental health break. I'm, I'm talking about, is there a better way for us to do this work? Is there a way for us to have different levels of understanding from um, our institutions? Is there a way for us to be at the tables and to understand what's happening? What I always work really hard with my um, advisors or my staff is for them to understand the, the vision that was coming down. So there wasn't this question of what is going on I feel like every time we turn around, we're getting a new, uh, you know, we're, we're being told something different. Last week it was this, this week it's that, next week it's this, next week it's that, right? And so there's a level of transparency that really needs to take place so people understand when you're shifting directions that you're not just shifting directions because it's fun, but you're understanding that maybe something has changed and now we have to respond because then people can anticipate that maybe change has to happen. But what happens or the beauty of that conversation is that maybe you wouldn't have picked this direction if I was at the table because I would have been able to give you that information in the first place, right? So so I think there is something more that we can do um, to answer your question. Um, but we, but my heart goes out to a lot of what's happening on the campuses right now. Yeah, and it's um, one of those things too, I think, you know, I've seen a lot on, on TikTok when I'm scrolling through some of those videos, um, not necessarily from higher ed, but a lot of, let's say, high school teachers and maybe some in, in higher ed where there's even memes out there where it's like, we're burnout. We need to have a conversation, but having a pizza party and telling us good job, that's, that doesn't cut it. <laughs> and yeah. Agreed. Um, there was a, an article that came out that said uh, there's a morale issue in higher education and giving a free t-shirt is not going to solve it. So you're absolutely right. Those those days are behind us. Yeah. And I guess, you know, going along with that, you know, we're talking about advisor retention, but then there's probably also the student retention. And during the pandemic and, you know, still in it, but during probably fall 2020, we probably saw a lot of institutions struggle with either getting students enrolled or had a large drop off of, in retention after that semester ended. And, you know, and there was policy changes that were temporarily changed, you know, from not giving F grades to students deciding if they want to do a credit, no credit option to some emergency financial aid to students. And I guess we would still say with the pandemic still going on, many of us have returned back to our institutions. You have students on campus, but you have some students that want to remain online. Maybe some students have on campus classes, but then also have some online classes at the same time. And, you know, there's new protocols with COVID vaccines and testing, and there's just so much going on. And, you know, you're talking about also like thing changes, you know, this day it's this, and the next day it's that, or the next week it's changed to this. I mean, what, do you have any advice, whether it's for students or how advisors can help their students when they sometimes may not know what, what is going on one day to the next? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today.
Oh, that's such a big question, but you're absolutely right. When you think about how nobody, I remember one time I had a session because you know you could tell that people, what you were just describing, like we don't know what's going on and how to help our students. And I was just talking about the idea of grace, which I know sometimes is a concept that people are like, okay, great, yeah, let's talk about grace. And I was like, okay. Um, and I said, raise your hand if you've ever been in a pandemic. And I was like, and if you raise your hand, you're not telling the truth because the last one was, you know, and everybody started laughing. But the reality is, is that nobody really knows how to manage this. And they think that they may know, and then they are changing quickly in order to address whatever gap, which was revealed based on the decision that they made. In my last institution, I think we did a really good job of pulling as many people to the table as possible so that we were covering the gaps and the blind spots. That still doesn't mean that we made all the decisions correctly. But when you have everybody at the table and you quickly realize the blind spot, you're able to move in a direction quickly and then you're informing everybody at the same time. And so it doesn't feel like you, you're being jerked around, right? Because you're like, remember when we made this decision, but we didn't take into account X. Oh, that's right, we didn't. So this is why we need to shift and move in this direction to do Y. What I found is that when you broaden the circle of concern, you start moving away from the idea of blame in terms of sharing um, a community decision and it becomes more of a trust factor in terms of no, you're right, we were all there, we made the decision and I trust that if, we, if we're shifting or we're moving in a different direction, then it's probably the right way for us to move because you would have, you definitely would have consulted me, right? Because I was there at the table when we first made the decision. And so what I'm noticing in certain institutions, I always ask the question, I said, well, who's in that meeting? Who's at the table? Who's making the decisions? Who's speaking on your behalf? Is the SGA there? Is there any student presence? You know, I start to learn very quickly, like who's making the decisions? What I found is that some leaders, unfortunately, believe that they need to know everything or they feel like they are not worthy to carry the title of leader. That's, that's very disconcerting for me because I always tell myself that if you are the smartest person in the room, you need a new room. I don't pretend to know everything, but that doesn't lessen who I am in the room. Being a leader is a decision. It's not a title and it's not a role, right? And so just because I'm responsible is what my title dictates, right? Whether I'm a president or a provost, a director of advising, my, my job, my role, my responsibility is to advocate on behalf of those who I'm responsible for. And so that doesn't mean I know everything. And so having the right people in the room in order to inform, right, and that's broadening the circle of concern is the best way for all of us to move forward in a pandemic where nobody has ever been a part of. And so I think I have been very surprised to find that people are managing this process with very limited information in the room, then they're making decisions. And then when they cast it out, people are like, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? And then they go back and then they're changing everything because now people have commented enough and it makes sense. They're like, oh man, we didn't think about that. But it's okay to have people in the room and you don't know everything because you're like, that's a great point, Matt. I didn't consider that. That's actually a great, you know, especially if you have a student voice or a feedback, the students are going to feel like they're involved with shaping the policy when students are, for example, 
there's a lot of students that are like, why am I paying my tuition for this, 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 and this? I'm losing these experience, blah, 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 blah. But if you talked about COVID policies and protocols and we can't get you sick and we, there's no way for us to fix this and that and that and that, then students would have recognized like, well, we can't use these services right now for this semester until they fix this, until they fix that, until they fix this. It's all about transparency on some level. I understand that we can't always explain everything. Um, and so I feel like that is kind of the challenge that a lot of campuses or institutions were facing. And I don't pretend to know all of what people feel comfortable in sharing. Um, but I've always found that my mentors have always really explained to me that, you know, Melinda, you really need to have people around you who are able to provide a certain level of expertise to guide you in your decision making. You are not going to know everything and you should not know everything. And so that's how I've always really operated in, in leadership. And especially in these particular situations where advisors who are having that direct connection to students who are feeling everything that students are feeling right now in these moments as to why I won't re-register. Maybe the student's planning to come back in the spring, but like you said, if I needed had if I needed financial support, if I'm gonna be online, um, do I have a laptop in order to take classes online? I'm I'm taking these classes on my phone. I, I could take classes, but I can't pay for books. You know, when you think about how that information or that feedback loop can give that information back to either financial aid or the registrar or to the provost or, you know, to enrollment managers in order to determine where those sources of funding um, could come down and be able to support student enrollment and retention or looking at populations like our males. We know that our men are struggling in terms of being re-enrolled or transferring or coming back into school or you're looking at particular majors. I mean, all that information and that data, Matt, is sitting out there, but who's looking at it and then being strategic about how it's being deployed. Those are some of the things that sometimes when I, I look at data, I'm like, who's responsible for steering and navigating and being strategic in thought and mind in terms of how we're shifting the way that we're deploying resources and how we're moving forward. But it has to start with listening. Yeah, definitely listening and active listening and, and actively engaging afterwards with that. And uh, as we're running out of time, I have tons of questions for you, but I think we'll end with, with this one. And that's one of your favorite quotes is, not all who wander are lost. And I know my dear friend, Evelyn Knox, uh, this, was, this is also her favorite quote. And in one of her previous roles, she coordinated our undecided exploratory student population. And so she found that this quote was fitting for students trying to like find their way through university, but especially with finding a major and that it, it's okay to explore and not know what you want to do right now. So for you, why, why is this one of your favorite quotes? Well, I, I am an avid fan of Lord of the Rings. Um, and so uh, Tolkien's uh, quote hits me in so many different ways. And I do know that when we talk about exploratory or undecided students, um, that is something that actually can be used to kind of frame their experience. But I think for me, what hits me at the heart is that sometimes we don't, we don't enjoy uh, the journey. We're just so caught up in the destination and the goal. And I'm very uh, goal oriented in that way, you know, and sometimes I struggle with perfectionism, like things have to be perfect and I have to get this goal and I have to achieve this mark. And so sometimes my life can feel very driven to like, I, I, it doesn't matter how I, I you know, I'm just gonna, you know, hit that goal. And as I've gotten older, I just really wanna slow down and enjoy 
the journey a lot more. You know, as my parents have gotten older and, um, you know, my dad has Alzheimer's and I just love sitting with him sometimes and just listen to him tell me just stories of when he was younger. And it just, I just really enjoy slowing down and just enjoying the smaller things in life now because I, I'm starting to recognize that, you know, we don't, we're not guaranteed forever, Matt. And it is this, in the small things where joy lives. And so it's not always about our achievements and it's not always about why we're achieving, right? But it's about what we're learning as we are changing, as we earn or move towards those achievements is what's really important, right? It's always the learning process. And so when I think about the wandering part of that statement, I know you're not lost because you're always learning. Yeah, perfectly said. And my boss has told me a few years ago that he's like, Matt, you you're, you always want to get to the goal and then you move on to the next goal. He's like, you never enjoy once you get to that finish line and just enjoy the moment or the journey that it took to get there. He's like, he's like, as much as like you keep wanting to get these goals and goals and goals, he's like, that's great. But it's like, you got to enjoy it because you'll look back and be like, where did the time go? And that actually resonated with me. And I'm like, yeah, I really need to to change that. And it, it's like changing or creating a new habit or changing an old habit. It is hard to do, but it is something I work on every day. But Melinda, if anyone has any questions, they, they probably everything they listen to, they're like, I definitely want Melinda either talk to our school or uh, I have more questions to follow up or they want to reach out to Nakata or to you. What's the best way for them to reach out? Um, definitely the best way is just to, to email um, Mr. Anderso, so no N, so M R A N D E R S O at ksu.edu is the best way. I'm also on LinkedIn, so find me on LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, I'm I'm really better with email, and LinkedIn social media platform is probably the best way to find me. And Matt, as always, I just want to thank you so much for your time, talent, and energy. Um, and sharing this platform with us. I just always enjoy speaking with you. Oh, same. Always love speaking with you. And I have a feeling that you're going to be on this podcast very soon again. So we will see. But Melinda, thank you so much. A lot of great info. Love these interviews. So thank you so much for joining us for this podcast today. No, thank you, Matt. Thanks so much, Melinda, for being a repeat guest on the podcast and talking about Nakata's goals and your thoughts on both advisor retention and student retention. Can't wait to have you on again. Before we get to our next interview, let's check with Dane Zanowski and hear who he's interviewing next on Dane's Desk, which is part of the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. Hello, Adventures in Advising podcast listeners. This is Dane coming to you from Dane's Desk, the video series on the Adventures in Advising YouTube channel. I'm here to talk about a, some great videos that we have for you. The most recent one that posted was with Philip Wilkerson from George Mason University. Philip talks about the importance of academic and career advising, so check that video out. 
And then coming up, we have a video with Lizzie Harmon, who is a program manager of academic support programs at the University of Washington. Lizzie talks about the importance of advisor self-care, so check that out as well. Feel free to connect with me through Facebook or LinkedIn if you have topic ideas for Dane's Desk, or if you want to be a guest on, on Dane's Desk as well. And as always, keep advising. Thanks, Dane. You already have 15 episodes on our YouTube channel right now for Dane's Desk, and you got another one coming up next week. Go check them out. Up next, let's talk with TJ Bokash from Johns Hopkins University. All right, next up on the podcast, we have TJ Bokash, who brings an international and diverse set of experiences as an LGBTQ plus advocate, educator, and contemplative pedagogy practitioner to their role as an academic advisor and success coach in the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences at Johns Hopkins University. After earning a BA in international studies, they served as a Fulbright Fellow in Germany, then went to earn a master's in educational policy and research administration at UMass Amherst. TJ was a regular panelist for the Stonewall Center Speakers Bureau, advocating for LGBTQ plus rights and educating students and professionals across the Northeast on LGBTQ plus topics. They have a particular passion for contemplative pedagogy and critical theory. TJ enjoys and continues to facilitate trainings around critical anti-oppression, contemplative practice, and mindfulness in higher education. They were a contributor to the Contemplative Pedagogy Working Group at UMass and are a member of the Association of Contemplative Mind in Higher Education, both serving to promote contemplative mindfulness practices across disciplines and in various academic and administrative units. At Hopkins, TJ teaches first-year seminars to assist students in transitioning into higher education. They currently serve as a member of a growing team in the fairly newly created Success Coaching Program and Academic Advising at Hopkins, aiming to support all first-generation and or limited-income students. TJ, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, and we were talking before we started recording that we got to see each other at the Nakata Cincinnati conference just a little while ago, but only got to spend probably 30 seconds yeah. talking to one another to reconnect. I, got, so. I had to get all your swag, so... <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but we were talking for like 30 seconds and you're like, I have to go do a presentation right yeah, now. Yes. So it takes a podcast to reconnect with you after a few years. I'll take it. <laughs> so usually we start these interviews kind of getting to know our guests. So for listeners who may want to know, who is TJ? Can you talk about your background in higher ed and academic advising? Sure. Yeah. I'm, I started off in higher ed um, when I started my master's program back in 2012. I, I tell everyone I took the scenic route to getting my master's. Um, but, uh, and when I started at UMass, I was working in a new role for leadership development in student activities and involvement. Uh, actually was supposed to be the Panhellenic Council advisor, uh, grad, grad assistant. Uh, but then they got rid of that role and created this new role. Um, I was also super nervous about that because I knew nothing about the Panhellenic. Um, process. Uh, so I was studying a lot. And so it was fine. Um, so I started off there advising really, really large um, student organizations that do a, that did a lot of sort of traveling, very large scale programming, bigger contracts, things like that. <clears throat> and then uh, I decided to uh, pursue love um, <laughs> halfway through my second semester, uh, drove back to Los Angeles, 
that didn't work out, but that's okay. We're still very good friends. Um, and <laughs> I was like, they do this in the movie, so shouldn't I give this a try too? Uh, so we did have that slow motion reconnection moment, which was really cool. But in the movies, there's also music in the background that plays. Yeah, we didn't have that. It was in my head. <laughs> um, so, and then somehow when I was back there, I ended up working in the fitness industry again. That was an interesting part of my journey that uh, happened. Um, and then I was like, this is not for me. I miss the love for being on a campus and education and just knew that that's where I was meant to be. <laughs> um, so... I returned and they graciously accepted me back into the program. Technically, I think I took a medical leave of absence, I think, um, which was good on good on whoever helped me do that because I don't I didn't even know how important that was to returning. Uh, but I actually did a leadership presentation at a seminar for um, peer mentors and advisors. Um, and I remembered the grad assistant who was in the same program and the individual that I helped with that course. And I was like, hey, I know this. Your grad assistant is, is, is uh, you know, graduating. Is that position still going to be available? Lo and behold, I end up working in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at UMass upon my return. Uh, and it was a fantastic experience in their advising center. Um, and that's where I got my advising start. Uh, at, well, my official, like, academic advising start. So yeah, that's how I got there. And then it goes, take it from there. Yeah, nice. And I know we were also talking earlier about, you know, we've known each other since we met at the Santa Rosa conference for region nine. And yes. what, that was 2017 or 18. Yeah. It, it might've been 18. I think Reno was 17. Um, yes. I could be wrong. I don't uh, know. One of the two. <laughs> right. One of the two. And you're working at LMU at the time. Mm -hmm. And then uh, we have a connection with uh, Mike Sersasimo, who's at LMU. And then we connected again at the Phoenix conference. Yep. And then that was, was that the last That was the last we time we saw it. Yeah. And then reconnect for 30 seconds at the Cincinnati conference. <laughs> how, how was that conference for you, by the way? Um, it was overwhelming. It's sort of like, I think, I think like anything, um, going back to something that large scale uh, and also hybrid in a new city, um, in a state that has different sort of regulations and sort of mandates uh, in sort of the COVID world that we're living in, um, sort of, uh, it was it, uh, it was exciting in many ways, um, but also a hyper anxiety provoking <laughs> in many other ways. Um, I'm grateful I did it. I mean, it was an I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have gone if I didn't receive the honor that uh, that I received with my colleague, Wyona Porath, um, for being best in Region 2. Um, so, and we were, so we had to fight for funding to get there um, because they had, they had allowed us to go and then they reneged on the funding like right before the conference. So um, luckily my appeal went through and I was able to go and be there to present with Wyona. I didn't want to let her down. Um, uh, and uh we did it. It was fabulous. I love sharing the message and content of of, of the work that I like to do. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was an experience. Cincinnati is a very interesting city. I find um, <laughs> it was I was just having fun, really exploring the city and sort of seeing what it's like and connecting with people. And yeah, it was it was nerve wracking navigating all of the. Uh, the immense amount of sessions and trying to figure out which one I wanted to go to 
because normally like if we're lucky if you're lucky you get to go with a couple of colleagues who get to sort of share you know divide and conquer the schedule for me i was just like i have no idea too many choices um but yeah it was a, it was a good experience the presentation went really well and uh it was nice to see and meet a couple of new people i got to meet um uh, wyona's uh yale emerging leaders program mentor um kathy davis who's fabulous um and then i met a couple of our other friends um at karaoke and and anybody that knows me knows i'm a karaoke fiend so i will always say yes <laughs> so yeah it was it was interesting uh i like flying again so i'm hopeful i've been trying to get back to germany for a long time now for several years i haven't been able to go for various happenstance reasons so fingers crossed this summer i get to go back yeah cincinnati was one where i, I grew to love the city uh, but it, it took a while to towards the end yeah <laughs> um, <laughs> i think you you understand what i'm saying with that. yeah yeah and i do want to talk about germany but i do want to first talk about your presentation uh, sure. that you did with Wyona. so that was navigating burnout in academic advising through mindfulness and like you said it was a uh, best of region winner so first if listeners have a probably have a question on this what it, what's a best of region winner like how, how does one win that you know it i found out like right as i started vacation during a very bizarre time in the summer and it was such a pleasant surprise totally unexpected um yeah so well this past year we had a, a virtual comp region one and two combined conference kind of like we did with nine and ten many years ago um it feels like it at least um and uh, so yeah we wayona had approached me because i had been doing i think i did like 15 or 16 or 17 workshops in the span of time that i was at hopkins in person when i started my role uh and before we went into uh to all virtual quarantine um so she knew i had a background in in mindfulness and contemplative practices and sort of and how it kind of can fit in with uh, advising in, in higher ed administration roles. Um, and so she just said, hey, I have this idea for a presentation. I've done it before, but I know you have a bit more experience in, in the, on the mindfulness side of things. So would you like to co-present? And I said, of course. And we she submitted. She's like an expert proposal writer. So she submitted and we got accepted to present at the regional one and two conference. Um, and then I don't I don't know how they decide um i must it's got to be i guess from from the the, the reviews afterwards um, yeah. um so i don't i don't know how it happened but it happened and it's amazing and it was really cool and you know who knows if it's a if it'll ever happen again so i had to make sure i took advantage of it apparently we get a plaque or something uh, you didn't get it no they i guess our region person wasn't there or something so they're sending it to us okay <laughs> yeah because i think usually yeah, if the region person's there they'll take the plaque to your presentation kind of surprise you and then um kind of embarrass you a little bit uh <laughs> for, for the presentation oh yeah <laughs> that's okay so you, so you miss all that but you're always presenting so <laughs> i figure you'll have another best of region at some point we'll see it's but, never that's never the goal um, yeah no of course i mean it, it's kind of like you know hey if it happens it happens but yeah. yeah i think it is based off the evaluations but i think it also just is a testament to the topic that how it was mm -hmm. presented and you know how engaging it was and just that attendees got to take something out of it they, they you know they were they had takeaways yeah. and you know so and the way you present i mean i attended one of your pre-conference uh virtual workshops earlier this year and i had a blast and i thought it, you know it was fantastic which is also on mindfulness um, yes <laughs> but, but speaking of mindfulness for like listeners do you 
like, how would you define mindfulness? And, and do you think there's any <laughs> misconceptions that people have about mindfulness? Oh, God, defining mindfulness. <laughs> uh, it's, there's no way to simply describe it, but it's basically, you know, it's a lot about, you know, here are the buzzwords, being present, interconnectedness, sort of non-attachment, non-judging, um, um, a lot about reflection and um, letting go and, and sort of really navigating how, how, how you exist in the world and uh, being intentional and uh, yeah, and it's a practice. It's something that you have to, that, that's not something that you can, again, in many of my presentations, we talk about mindfulness um, and it's like, you can't, you, you can't really access, like fully access uh, mindfulness in one workshop. Uh, it's, it's something that you have to continue to sort of engage in and develop, uh, but it, it's worth it. And so uh, over the years of developing ways of, of teaching and presenting and bringing people into that space, I've <clears throat> learned a lot about what needs to happen and, uh, and how to, how to make it work for people who are sometimes skeptical about mindfulness. Right. And I think people are skeptical because either one, they've never experienced it or realized that they've experienced it um or two they've experienced it in the context of sort of the mindfulness sort of productivity booster rather than something that's about your entire life and being and uh so and i think that puts that can sometimes put a negative taste or skeptical taste in people's mouths and so when they see that they're like intrigued but they're kind of like meh what is this uh hokey pokey business going on <laughs> so yeah <clears throat> Yeah. And with your presentation, like you were talking about mindfulness and then uh, burnout, and that's a huge topic. I mean, yeah. I think especially, <laughs> especially right now. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so in your presentation, I mean, not to say like, okay, give us the whole spiel about your presentation, but in it, there is, you're talking about like the burnout cycle, mm -hmm. you know, any quick tips you have for listeners who are like, I think I, I am burnout and I don't see an end to this is there a way to to kind of break that cycle yeah i think it was kind of inspired by a question when in the when we did the pre-con um there was somebody that asked about how do we or no actually no when we did our virtual presentation my own and i somebody asked how do you create positive responses to stress and it really comes down to um interrupting number one identifying when you're getting there right so it's like for me having lived with an anxiety disorder for a long time i've learned to identify my own benchmarks sort of like behaviors or ways i'm feeling or thinking or or acting or reacting um so i start to sort of and anything that you're trying to do when you're trying to sort of break a habit or cycle you have to sort of identify learn to be pay attention to be mindful of what you're experiencing and and be able to say okay wait a minute this is something that i know is is contributing to me getting to a place where i'm going to like either be totally burnt out or stress you usually stress there's two different cycles so burnout comes after we don't deal with the stress that that's that's when you're like completely shut down and and need need to recharge and revisit um but yeah, so it's it's sort of identifying your own benchmark so that you know when you're reaching sort of the point of stress before you go over the edge. Um, and then also uh, one technique is on recognizing that stress is is when you're aware of it is an indicator. It's something that you can actually engage in mindfully and intentionally and intentionally, which I think we forget. Like we forget that we can actually look at stress as as a positive, um, a positive sort of 
beacon or you know uh turnstile that we're able to like engage in to sort of redirect reconfigure um and do stuff do do take action that will benefit us ourselves and everyone else around us <laughs> consequentially um and the other piece of advice is, uh, is from, from mindfulness practices is to greet your emotions. So a very simple technique that uh, I think I've probably talked about in our pre-con was to say hello. Um, actually, literally, you do it. Either say it out loud or in your in your mind's ear, <laughs> mind's voice, you say, like, if you recognize you're experiencing stress or frustration or anger, say, hello, anger, um, and I see you. And then that interrupts the whole physiological process that gives you time to think about whether that response is, is warranted or necessary for you to actually engage with what you're feeling. It's not to say that we're not just, we're not supposed to experience those things. Those are very important, but it's, to, it's a matter of to the extent to which we allow those experience, those emotions to control and direct our behavior and our thoughts and our health and well-being. Yeah, and definitely great tips. I mean, and, and of course there's more, and I would say like, <laughs> If <laughs> listeners, if ever TJ is presenting, please go to their presentation uh, or the pre-con. And speaking of pre-con, so one of the interesting things that I think you did, and maybe you do it in all your presentations, I don't know, is is the icebreakers. Like usually there's a the traditional icebreaker. All right, you know, talk to your partner, get their name, what institution they're from. Oh, yeah. And you're like, I'm not about that. <laughs> Can you talk about some of the icebreakers that, that you do? Uh-huh. <laughs> that's this funny uh it comes up i don't do i usually do it at all of them um i didn't do it uh in a couple of spaces because i kind of went into approach it in a different way each time sometimes just to keep it fresh but like one of the simple ways that i i do an icebreaker is i like i, I found through my work that um in order for people to get to a space where they can they can really start to engage in a practice they need to understand certain be comfortable with certain things and so really i start with a lot with concepts around vulnerability um and and sort of accessing how we understand who we are um i found that that's super important in order to be able to do anything else that i try to do because most of everything else is going to be awkward and uncomfortable and if you haven't built in that that capacity uh it, it tends to fall flat um so one of the things that I do is I ask people to introduce themselves to their partner and then I let that go on for a little bit and I sit and smile uh, and then I, I ask them to introduce themselves or introduce your space self and then there's always like the really puzzled look um, confusion they're like I just did that and, and then you have to go through this process of figuring out what I'm actually asking um, and and then we have a whole then they try to do that and then we have a whole conversation about how they experience that. And it's it starts off that process of sort of like lifting the veil a little bit. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was definitely something I was not used to during the pre yeah. virtual pre-con. So I'm like, uh, I'm just going to stay quiet <laughs> <laughs> and let someone else, you know, start it. And then I don't know if it was that icebreaker, but eventually you ended up calling on me. And I was like, darn it. Okay, yeah. I guess not. I, I, <laughs> I was, well, I, I knew you were there. So I was like, uh, easy target. <laughs> right. So I guess note to self, if you know TJ and you go to their presentation, beware. So let's let's go back uh, years and okay. let's, let's talk about Germany. So yeah. you were a Fulbright fellow in Germany. You had graduated with your BA in international studies. Yeah. What, what was it about the international studies major that you chose and what led to serving as a Fulbright fellow? Oof. 
Uh, I just, I grew up in a very, very small town. Like I think there were 67 people in my graduating class, but I eat the town that I actually lived in was 20 minutes outside. Uh, where we had like one stop sign. And I always tell the joke that like, if you're ever driving down the highway and you see a random house in the middle of nowhere and you ask yourself, where do they get food and where do they go to school? That's kind of like where I grew up. I'm grateful for it now when I was a teenager, probably not so much. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I just wanted to, and my family had all lived in the same community for the entire time that they were in the United States, came to the United States. Uh, so I just wanted to explore the world and I just was determined to just get out of there and, you know, living as, um, you know, living in a space where being gay or bi or pan or whatever, uh, is not at all talked about. Um, and it doesn't exist really anywhere that was like pre Ellen, <laughs> God, I'm aging myself a little bit, but um you know it's like and it was all all of the tropes and stereotypes i was just like i need to get out i need to reset i need to find myself and uh i applied to go to germany in high school as an exchange student and got this fantastic scholarship um and the day i left on september 6 2001 from bc and then i arrived not speaking a lick of german and then september 11th happened um and that just created this whole new world um for for me being in a and i happen and i happen to be placed in a host family in berlin so i went from middle of nowhere to berlin speaking a language that i don't speak and and then uh like directly post 9 11. so that was the biggest um factor for getting me to study international politics and particularly because my best friend there um was palestinian jordanian like refugee and or like her family was and she, they still had family back there and i started to really um uncover so much that we're just not taught and we're not told and we're not shown um and yeah that just completely changed my life um my host, my host family were a part of this nudist organization so that definitely was interesting as a teenager um but actually that was probably one of the most transformative things that i still carry with me to this day is that experience too um uh but we don't need to talk about that in this this particular podcast um, yeah, so from that, I just decided I knew I wanted to like do something in international politics, international relations. So I found this great program that had, it was small, but it had really amazing like connections and opportunities to the United Nations, to the State Department, to foreign relations and foreign affairs. Um, and I just kept going. And, and I was like, I saw on Facebook, this is also when we had to petition to get Facebook at your, yeah, at your university. <laughs> you had this prove that you were in higher ed and then get the institution allow it. So I saw a picture of one of my friends who went to Germany when I was in high school with me on the same scholarship and she was back in Germany. I'm like, how did you get there? I need to go back there. And we had, at the time, my institution had one graduate student before me got a Fulbright. And I found out about the application like two or three weeks before it was due. Uh, so anyways, yeah, I, I applied and I got it and I got super lucky. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's how I ended up in, in that role. But then after actually having worked in, uh, in, in different UN capacities and spaces, working in different state department capacities and spaces and state politics, uh, almost state politics, um, uh, and then abroad as well. Uh, I just realized that the, to make a career there would I'm too much of a rebel, <laughs> I'm, too, I'm too controversial, quote unquote. Uh, so I, it wouldn't be right for me. So that's that's where I, I made a shift. And I also got sick, unfortunately. Um, 
So that really interrupted that particular part of my journey. Yeah, and so I didn't read it in the bio, but I want to ask you about it, is that you also were a lecturer for the U.S. consulate promoting U.S.-German relations. Mm -hmm. You were also a U.S. delegate at a NATO conference in Denmark. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, how does this come about? I don't know. I just, it's just the randomness of, of life and risk-taking, I think, and being okay with being uncomfortable. I mean, if I'm willing to put myself in another country because I, I'm desperate to learn. I wanted to be bilingual. Like that was why I was going to Germany <laughs> and I wanted to experience the world and um, and I made it happen. And, uh, you know, my goal was to be to speak to native speakers and have them not know I'm not native speaker. <laughs> and it worked. I got there. Um, but yeah, I just and also because of the program and the connections that we that I had it and I had very small classes. And so like all of my, I took seven classes with like the same professor, um, who's now a good friend of mine. And we've, we've had a lot of fun over the years. Um, and she's fabulous. And they just got to know what I wanted to do and saw my potential and connected me to all these like amazing opportunities. They're like, Hey, here's this conference at the UN we'll pay for it. Do you want to go? Like, and then the next year I organized it to bring more, more of our students there. And we got to present a resolution at the General Assembly um, to the, of the United Nations on the Millennium Development Goals, and I got to co-author that and <laughs> edit it. It's really random, random stuff. <laughs> there was a, yeah, and I just applied. I wrote an essay about something that I didn't know. A lot of what I've done in, in, in my life is to sort of say yes and then figure it out. <laughs> uh, so, like, that's what I, that's how I got into present, like, giving presentations of workshops. I would just say, yeah, sure, I'll speak to this topic. And I'm like, okay, now I have to learn how to, like, present to people to bring a new, a fresh perspective. That's always been my goal is to bring something new, even if it's the information is already all there, right? Um, how we process and collect it and think about it is, is my, my goal to, to influence. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like you, you put yourself out there and mm -hmm. yeah, and, and a lot of people, me included, probably at that years ago would have been like, no way, you know, <laughs> I, I need to be the expert already. And then mm -hmm. maybe I'll, I'll present or, you know, go to Germany or something, you know, mm -hmm. but it's for you. It's like, I'm just going to go and then I'll figure it out along the way. But it's something I want to do. And yeah. yeah, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And, and that's what we do in advising too. a right. lot of the time is sort of you know, what, especially with first year students, for example, like they come in and they say, or are working with fly um, students for Shen, limited income, black, uh, is that, you know, there's this fear of putting yourself out there because you don't already have it on your resume or in your back pocket. Mm -hmm. And students, experience, we experience that and students experience that in learning spaces too. Like when, we, when I have conversations with my students about like, do you raise your hand? Why or why not? And what what allows someone to be able to raise their hand and speak up and participate and so we sort of work through um how you can my favorite poet talks about growing bigger into the world um rather than growing smaller um so how can they do that and get, empower them to do that so yeah and, and that's that's how it works because you don't need to be in like there's no ownership like mm -hmm. we like to pretend that there's ownership over ideas and knowledge and um once we let go of that that idea, you can you can allow others to interact. You can grow yourself because we sort of cut ourselves off once we think that we're experts, <laughs> or or we we severely limit our or slow down our learning and our growth. 
Very true. <clears throat> and and talking about you know, putting yourself out there, like you in 2013, you <laughs> participated in a TED Talk. <laughs> Another random thing that TJ has done. Uh, and that a, one was a TEDx talk to be TED, TEDx talk. And to that be one, fair. yeah, that that one was titled "A uh, Greet Death with a Smile." Mm. How did you get involved with this TEDx talk? And talk, can you talk more about the greet death with a with a smile? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, obviously, it's cringe. It's always cringy to like look at myself speaking. Um, so I don't really ever watch it. I've only watched it a couple times um, since then. Uh, but I got involved actually because I was advising the TED, like the TEDx group had just started, and so I was advising them and sort of helping them get get like position themselves to actually put on a TEDx conference at UMass, and which is a huge, huge undertaking. <laughs> um, and they had all these speakers lined up and then they also had a competition um for a student speaker and i was like well is it open to grad students and i was like okay but you know i didn't want to take an undergraduate student spot so like i was really conflicted uh but i did it and they came in the two like the president and vice president of the tedx team came into my office and said you know we're sorry uh but where you won uh, so they tried to like they they buried the lead there um and yeah so that's how i got to be able to share my story because um, I did a, I did it like a, a other version of it before with other presenters to get selected. Um, yeah, and then I just did it and Greet Death with a Smile sort of came about with um, sort of thinking about a lot of loss and trauma. And um, for a long time, I had, I while I was in Germany the second time, I developed a pretty severe panic disorder toward the end of my time there. And I didn't know why. Um, and what was going on and I really couldn't speak um, like medical German proficiently so I just knew that I needed to go back to the United States to figure out what was happening it was really scary um and it turned out eventually once once I had proof that that I had uh, an actual physiological problem going on um I ended up having uh, heart arrhythmia uh, congenital heart arrhythmia um and then I had surgery and I'm much better now um but at the time I really like you know, my, my, a lot of, I lost like a lot of my nuclear group, um, and, um, like my sense of home, uh, when I came back from Germany, like all I had left was a car barely and it wasn't working. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was wild. And it, and it inter I had, I'd actually been offered a position at the consulate to work there for like six months and live there and work in their political and economic sector, uh, but, but I had to give that up and that and and then I tried to do other things to get back into the field of international politics uh, and it just never nothing landed and then alone here we are <laughs> that's a long long set of stories in between now and then and now <laughs> yeah is it but okay learning, I... learning lessons from yeah um, from from death from from loss like and yeah. thinking about all like what it was for a time it was easier for me to sort of ruminate and live in that negative space but then when i think back i'm like where i am now and who i am now you know i'm like oh yeah so it like the reason why we live and we, we the reason why i like to put myself out there and take risks and be vulnerable is because i know that you know our time here is short um so and you never know how short uh so yeah that that's why i call call it called it great death with a smile yeah. Is it okay if I put the link in our show notes? Sure. Awesome. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, and you know, I, I remember 
I want to say it was when we were in Santa Rosa. Somehow, I think that TEDx talk came up, and then like mm. you sent me the link, and I watched it, and then I watched it again just recently. And it's, I mean, I think the whole thing from start to finish, you know, from the visual view with the straight jacket, um, you know, it kind of just pulls you into to what you're talking about, and. You know, you talk about how the word crazy gets tossed around like confetti at a birthday party. <laughs> uh, and, and that in a way, a lot of times we have these like linear thoughts, you know, mm -hmm. to our lives, you know, and you brought up a great question was like, does your resume or, you know, your CV, is that equal your life? You know, is that is that you or is it what you do? Mm -hmm. um, and so I thought it's very powerful stuff. So I really encourage listeners to to uh, watch that TEDx talk. And um, and so now where you're at you're at hopkins mm -hmm. and you're an academic advisor and success coach mm -hmm. and you're in a what you say fairly newly uh, program mm -hmm. can you talk about like how that program came about uh, and your role in it yeah so um it was created by um a couple of colleagues of mine working through the center for student success here and then the two um schools School of Arts and Sciences and Whiting School of Engineering and sort of an initiative to support um, basically an, a goal to support every single, excuse me, first generation and or limited income student at Hopkins um, and their journey. Um, and it was also a part of the Bloomberg gift um, to Hopkins. Um, so that's how the program got its funding and sort of got like really our programs here have been have exploded over the past three years. Um, but yeah, so the whole goal was to create this bridge between academic affairs and student affairs. And we, we're academic advisors and success coaches. So even though we're under the umbrella of uh, student affairs, we are embedded in each of the schools in their advising offices. Um, and yeah, I started it. We started it together in 2019. So we're in like over a little over our two year anniversary. There were three of us um, that sort of took what took the initiative and sort of started to create the program. And now there's 13 of us um, and we're supporting a really high percentage of our fly students, like probably by next year at the, you know, the year after by the latest, we'll have, we'll have every single fly student will have uh, be a part of some sort of a, co a program that sort of will support them, um, which is really cool. So we went from three at, three success coaches and advisors and 90 students to now um, 11 coaches, a director. We didn't have a director at the time either when we started. So that was a interesting adventure to start creating a program and then bring a director in on afterwards. Uh, yeah. So it's almost like what you're, you're build, building the plane as you're flying. It. Yes. We've used that phrase. I've used that phrase too many times over the past two years. They're like yeah. TJ stop. <laughs> yeah. I tell myself that. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to say it this time. I'm going to use another energy. Right. <laughs> but that's wild, though. You know, probably exciting, but nervous at the same time where it's, here's this new program. Okay, implement it, figure it out. But now it's, to see where it started and where it is now and where it's True. probably going to go. That's wild. It is. It is. It, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, yeah, it's yeah, it's I've, I've learned a lot. Um, I feel like I've grown a lot and uh yeah, it's, it, I, it's just, I don't know, it's the ideal, it's the dream, I think, for advisors. And I think what, what we get to do is not separate from what, what advising is as a profession. 
Um, we just are, we're, the program is intended to build the capacity for, for advisors to do the work that they, they know that they want to be doing as much as possible to provide all of their students with sort of um, what they, like an individual sort of support system that meets their individual needs and, and, and helps them along their own path. Um, that's the dream, right? But oftentimes we're just, we don't have enough advisors to students to make caseloads that allow for that type of meaningful, impactful work to the extent that we know we're capable. Right. But it seems like you're making it work so far. So so far, so good. Yeah. So <laughs> knock on wood that it continues to, to go yeah. well, but that, yeah, I, I'm excited to follow up with you and maybe yeah. like six months or a year and be like, hey, where, where is it at now? Yeah, we went from 90 students to over 500. So in two years. We had we hired eight coaches all right, uh, virtually. <laughs> so <laughs> that could lead us to another conversation about like, oh, onboarding God. for for virtual virtual no, new advisors. <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> That's it's too too close. It's too close. We'll say we'll say that for another save that time. for another year or two <laughs> or more or <laughs> <Yeah>, more. <laughs> So another one of the many things that TJ has done is you've also done a lot of advocating for LGBTQ plus rights, you know, discussion topics, uh, you know, for the LGBTQ plus community. Uh, you were a regular panelist for the Stonewall Center Speakers Bureau. Uh, what is the Stonewall Center Speakers Bureau and how did you become a panelist for that? It's an amazing thing that was started at UMass Amherst, I believe by Jenny Beeman, who's a pretty well-known scholar. Um, in, in the field. Um, and it was an initiative to bring uh, folks from all identities um, uh, on the LGBTQ plus spectrum in to into any space, um, whether it be uh, classrooms um, in uh, higher ed, high school, middle school. Um, I was a regular uh, speaker to a sex therapy organization. Um, we got to speak at a Catholic-based sort of sort of uh, detention facility who uh, were having struggles dealing with, um, you know, the tenants of the faith and uh, trans um, uh, trans rights and th needs. Um, and that was a very uh, amazing experience to be able to sort of go into those spaces and help people learn and grow and i you know i learned so much uh, i mean it is it is beyond a simple acronym uh and i i definitely like was taught a lot and sort of learned how to correct myself and be more mindful of like what i understood the community to be and uh yeah it was fabulous i love doing the work um yeah and i i yeah, it, it's an amazing program. And actually, I think it should exist everywhere. Um, I kind of like if I had the capacity right now, I would definitely want to try to start something like that here, um, where it's just this wonderful repository of volunteers that goes out every year, you go through a training, and then it's advertised out to be like, New England, mostly like New York, Massachusetts, a little bit of Vermont and Maine, and New Hampshire and Connecticut. Um, <clears throat> but whoever wants to request a panel, They'll just fill out this form. They'll identify like who they are, why they want it, why they want someone like panelists to go, and we'll usually try to get like three people of different varying identities um, to go and then speak to whatever it is that they that the person that requested the panel um, for us to highlight talking about. Uh, so we talk about sexual behavior versus sexual relationships. 
uh, romantic behavior versus romantic relationships and like every all all of it all the things <laughs> so it's a really cool program and i hope that uh you know more people will look into what umass has been doing with that and 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 make that a thing at their institution because it's it's so cool and it brings everyone together too so we also learn as a community we find community and then we also get to educate so yeah no that sounds great and yeah I, hopefully listeners maybe they'll want to they'll connect with you or they'll maybe go check take and see what uh umass amherst is doing and mm -hmm. uh, maybe try to implement it at their institution yeah it's awesome yeah but speaking of like institutions like what's your opinion in terms of what else can higher ed institutions do or still do to support, you know, our LGBTQ plus students? Uh, resources. <laughs> um, it's sort of, uh, uh, what's the word? It's like a catch 22 or something where, where like you want, like we, we look at essential sort of maybe identity-based student services and how at most institutions they are not centralized in terms of location so i'm really interested really interested in sort of environmental psychology and and uh urban design um but that's not uh <laughs> but like when like if you look at where the lgbt center at umass is located it's very very far away from the center of campus but it's actually centrally located to all the first and second year students mostly um so just thinking about positioning where you're positioning and how you're actually actively supporting i think in if if i'm just speaking for myself here which obviously i'm doing um <laughs> uh just thinking about how just looking at even lgbtq spaces outside of higher ed and how they're shrinking very rapidly um and yeah with you know online apps and stuff and sort of like the rapid decline of, of you know lgbtq plus cafes businesses um bars restaurants clubs um and then also like safety um is an issue so i think actually creating spaces for community is probably where i would think to start i think it's i think there's a bit of passiveness that is sort of um started to creep up into certain parts of society or pretty much everywhere where there's this idea that okay now that there's representation um then we don't then it's fine so we don't need those spaces anymore um or people feel safer in space like you we've seen like lots of memes and articles about folks like you know bridesmaids parties going to clubs and 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 you know heterosexual men bartending at a gay bar and sort of and like I, i've been researching a lot about gay baiting and think, and having a hard time reconciling sort of acceptance and inclusion for, to then think about what it means to ha have an impact on on sort of diluting community um, and finding different ways to connect. So I think really being intentional about re like elevating it back up. So yes, we have marriage equality. So let's let's go back to that time when we were that active and engaged and that present and that visible, and stay there because <laughs> it's still it's like it's important for for people to have spaces to feel safe and heard and 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 yeah, do all of those things, especially young folks. But I think about it all the time now, depending on where I'm living, you know, do I have, is there space for me in terms of all of my different identities? Um, yeah, so sometimes it's just like a random program here or there now um, that I see. So it's like you have the center, but now it's sort of like a hidden 
entity. Yeah, I don't, and this is going against any institution. I'm just just talking in general, but yes. yeah, it's almost like you. Oh, we reached this goal. Check the box. Okay, cool. Now we can move on to something else. And then yeah. it's like, okay, but there's still things that need to be done. It's like, well, yeah. we're okay right now. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. And yeah, like I had a, an, an interesting experience. I know we're coming close to the hour, um, but with a, you know, a trans student, you know, trying to help students navigate, trans students, for example, navigate not having either the family support or the communal support back home getting it here a little bit getting access to insurance to get medication and hormone therapy for example if that's something that someone is pursuing uh, and then having that sort of be torn apart and sort of really it's such a it was such a profound realization for me in terms of like and i've noticed it myself thinking about you know am i living in a space where i can access a queer identified uh healthcare provider or therapist or whatever and you just yeah it's difficult it was nice living in west hollywood in that little um you know lgbt bubble uh but once you leave that it's 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 harder to harder to see and feel connected yeah and i feel like there's gonna be more to this conversation and we'd love to have you back on the podcast as sure. well but uh, like you were mentioning yeah, we are at time but if listeners have any questions or they want to connect with you, what's how's what's the best way for them to do that? Um, anyway, uh, yeah, like I, I have all my my email is um, tvocage so, uh, at jhu.edu, um, twvocage at gmail. Find me on try to find me on Facebook, LinkedIn. Doesn't matter. Reach out to me. My info is on the Hopkins um, Center for Student Success website. Uh, so yeah, I'm happy to connect and chat and maybe if you're looking for a presentation at your institution or for your department i'm, I'm happy to think, look into that too awesome sounds good but we were joking earlier when we started this about this the way we got to connect this through the podcast but it, i always enjoy talking with you tj and i learned so much about you <laughs> in this one hour that i've known you since 2018 <laughs> tj thank you so much for being with us today i'm an onion there's a lot of layers <laughs> <laughs> my pleasure thanks for having me i'm really grateful for the opportunity uh to share and connect and uh yeah i look forward to, to more of that tj you are awesome you've done so much in your life already and i feel we've only touched the surface of everything you've been a part of so in both tj and melinda's interviews we chatted a little bit about the Cincinnati Nakata Annual Conference. So let's continue that and more with our next interview. And that is with Josh Linerode from Lake Erie College. Up next, we have Josh Linerode. Josh has been working as the professional academic advisor at Lake Erie College in Painesville, Ohio for the last four years. Josh serves as a primary academic advisor for exploratory and college credit plus students, as well as students interested in pursuing individualized majors. Josh earned his master's degree in counseling from Youngstown State University, bachelor's degree from the University of Mount Union, majoring in interdisciplinary studies with focuses in education, psychology, and sociology. Earlier this year, Josh earned his certification in appreciative advising. When not working in academic advising, you can find Josh reading a book, performing with local community theaters, or attending theater performances. Josh is also an avid fan of Disney, mythology, and pop culture. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. And so 
we've actually connected through Instagram, uh, mm -hmm. through the Adventures in Advising IG. So go follow that if you're listening at Advising Podcast. And, you know, we've kind of figured out that we both love pop culture. We both love advising. Uh, we got to meet very briefly at the Cincinnati conference, the Nakata Annual Conference. That was just a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. But before we get into a lot of that, uh, listeners usually want to know, who who's the guest? So who is Josh? Can you talk about your path into higher ed and academic advising? Sure. Uh, so when I first started in my undergrad, I was originally going to be a major in middle childhood education to try and teach science and social studies. I did my first in-classroom experience and I said, no, thank you. Um, so I just learned that that wasn't for me. And I found that I had a really good connection with those that worked in student affairs because uh, I was on residence life. Went off to grad school because uh, I knew I wanted a counseling background with student affairs, found the program at Youngstown State. And then I made some really cool connections with the academic advising staff there I interned with them and that's what led me to where I am today. Plus I had some amazing advisors when I was in my undergraduate as well. I just didn't put that connection together until I started my grad school career. Yeah. It's almost like you reflect back on it. You're like, Oh yeah, they helped tell me. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> During the time it doesn't, you just feel like you're going all over the place, but then you look back and you're like, okay, it wasn't a straight line, but Everything led to there. where, yeah, everything led to where it needed to go. Now, when you had your original major, was that something you were thinking about doing for like a long time? Originally, like I wanted to be a teacher since like third grade. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I want to be a teacher. That like, This is what I know what I wanted to do. Like before that, it was to be a paleontologist. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> went from that to wanting to be a teacher. Um, so it was kind of, I had a mid- mild identity crisis whenever I'm like, you know what, teaching is not for me. Mm -hmm. So it's just finding that path from there. So luckily I had some awesome support um, in my undergrad. Nice. Yeah. I, I'm just, now I'm just kind of thinking back to when I was an undergrad and yeah, I started out at, at the community college, but every class I took, I was interested in it. I was like, oh, I want to do this now as my career. Like I take an English class. I want to be an English teacher or a writer. And then not really realizing how, how many other careers paths you can go into with an English degree. And then I was almost set on math for a long time. And then it was my junior year. I was transferred over to Cal State San Bernardino. And then I was like, I think I want to change my major. And my EOP counselor was like, okay, you need to make a decision like right now because <laughs> registration's coming up and, you know, you don't want to delay your graduation. But yeah, advisors really do make a huge difference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now you're at uh, Lake Erie College. You've been there now for a few years. Um, can you talk about, for those that may not know about your college, can you talk about that, your institution? Absolutely. So Lake Erie College is a very small private liberal arts institution in Painesville, Ohio. So we're about 30 to 45 minutes uh, east of Cleveland. Um, we were, we, when we opened in 1856, we were originally an all women's seminary school. Um, so I, that's like a little fun fact about us. And then we became co-ed in the 1980s. Um, so we have over 35 majors on campus. Uh, four of those majors are actually equine majors. So we have dedicated majors to working with horses. Um, and we have our own um, horse facility about 15, 20 minutes away from campus. So it's a pretty cool little place to be. 
Yeah, sounds like, and definitely has a lot of history. Now I'm thinking like if anyone like wants a, a tour of the campus or just, you know, wants to know more, it's like they will get a lot of different facts, <laughs> a lot of fun facts that they can share, share with others. And so your role right now, you're an academic advisor. Um, mm -hmm. You work with various populations, so exploratory, college credit plus students. Um, can you talk more about your role and what that entails? Absolutely. So I'm actually the professional advisor on campus. Ah, so okay. when people talk the, about professional advising offices, I'm like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's me and only me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so while I'm assigned to those dedicated populations of exploratory college credit plus and like the individualized majors, I'm also able to advise just about any of our other programs that we have on campus. I work with students. I'm like, okay, here's how things fit in a degree plan. However, based on the course content, it's probably going to be better to talk to the people that teach that content area simply because they know the workload better than I do. Because um, I found that students really appreciate when you're just upfront and honest with them of, you know what? Yes, I can tell you this stuff, but I'm not an expert in this field. So let's get you in contact with one of the faculty advisors. Because once a student declares a major, they are um, given a faculty advisor. So I do all that stuff. Um, another role that I have is with our NCAA athletics. Um, so we're about 75% NCAA student athletes. Um, so I'm also the one that works with them on their eligibility from the academic side. So I wear many a hat. <laughs> it's, it's very fun. It's never a boring day. Uh, it's always an adventure. Sounds like. Now, was were you... I guess with the professional advisor role, like was there already someone in that place and then they left and then you took their place or mm -hmm. are you like the first one um, that, that kind of came into this role? So um, there was somebody originally in this position. Uh, she had left the institution for another opportunity and then I ended up coming in. So I think it was a, almost a pretty quick turnaround between her leaving and me starting. Um, so yeah. So as you being like the the professional advisor, what was your training like, if, if any, when you started? The most beneficial experience that I had um, with my training is that I actually got to sit down with all of the deans for the different departments and was like, OK, what do I need to know about your school, your programs? Tell me what I need to know. Um, so that was very helpful. Also, I'm right across the hall from the registrar's office. They are a delight and a half. Uh, there's a joker on campus that I'm a part of their office by proxy because we work so closely together. Um, so I like to describe Lake Erie College as just one big family. So we all know each other. We all may not work together every day um, as in like seeing each other face to face, but we're able to pick up the phone and call one another and be like, hey, here's what's going on. How can I help? Can you help? That type of thing. Yeah, and you mentioned family, and sometimes using the term family at at a, at work usually has a negative connotation to it. Sometimes, but it seems like in this case, since you're connected pretty much to all these other departments, it's like you really have to kind of collaborate and work with others and really get to know them. and And everyone seems to be friendly with one another as well. Yeah, obviously, like in any workspace, the, there are going to be times where we clash that type of thing sure. but what's nice with building the connections that we have here on campus is that we're able to have hard conversations 
and be like, hey, like, I don't necessarily agree with this. How can we work this out? And having those connections make those conversations easier. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, you work with College Credit Plus students. That's one of, one of the groups. What exactly is College Credit Plus students? So the College Credit Plus program um, is was also known as post-secondary, uh, the post-secondary option. Uh, so those are high school students that are taking college courses. So I'm the advisor for that to make sure that they are on track to meet all of their high school graduation requirements while also preparing them for potential majors that they have uh, in the future. Nice. And so wearing all these hats, you have all these different student groups that, that you have to work with. Um, are you also doing orientation as well? Uh huh. <laughs> sure am. So um, because we are so small, we can't offer every single class every single semester. Mm -hmm. um, so for orientations, I'm actually the one registering all of our new incoming students. So we pre-register all of them. Then when they attend orientation, if there's any conflicts or just like, you know what, I'm not feeling this class, we work with them on updating their schedule to the best of our ability. So that's my big summer project that I do is pre-registering <laughs> all of our new incoming students. Sounds like fun. But it seems like a lot of institutions, like our institution uh, has done that now. They, we started last year with, with the pre-enrollment. Um, so I guess like with you having done it now, um, is there anything that, that you've learned from like year to year that's made it easier with, with pre-registering these students? So someone that helped me is a, I send out an email to faculty um, before the end of the spring semester. And we're like, okay, based off of what's being offered, what should a first semester student in your program be registered for? What are the priority classes? Um, so faculty send me a list of one, two, sometimes three classes of, okay, somebody majoring in this has to be in these classes and these classes are non-negotiable. So what I do when I do these registrations is I pull up, we call it, a, there's a joke between the registrar's office and me, we call it a spreadsheet of nastiness because it's just so much information. It can be kind of overwhelming. I go through that spreadsheet and I'm like, okay, here are all the majors. I register, I register them for those priority classes first. And then we start plugging in gen ed core classes uh, from there so that we can get them to full-time 15, 16 credits. Yeah. So was it a spreadsheet of nastiness? Yeah. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> like I said, we like to have fun. So like all of our <laughs> spreadsheets have a different nickname. <laughs> no, that is awesome. But I, I, I think anyone listening can totally get it where it's like they might get the, you know, here's this Excel sheet or here's this, you know, data you find online and it's so much. And you're like, well, I just need to get this piece oh, yeah. you know, and how do I get to that? And a lot of sorting and, and all of that. So, um, yeah, my mind is, I'm stressing out now just thinking about it, but uh, <laughs> we'll move on from that. <laughs> so let's talk about, you have a certification in appreciative advising. Yes. How did you find out about this certification? How long was it for? Uh, how does this help you with your students now? So um, I just did a random like Google search because I happened to hear from appreci about appreciative advising through the grapevine. Mm -hmm. um, so I did a search on it. And I'm like, ooh, it sounds really cool. Um, so I took the class through the Florida Atlantic University online um, professional development opportunity um, that was taught by um, Dr. Jenny Bloom. Mm -hmm. 
So, which I had the opportunity to meet her at the conference and it was really fun. <laughs> um, so I took the class and I found out it was something that you can actually get certified in. And originally I wasn't going to do apply for the certification. I'm like, you know what? I'm content with just doing the class, having the completion with it. But then I thought about what I tell my students to, to push yourself further than what you originally set your expectations to. So put so to push myself further, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to practice what I preach to my students. Apply for this. See what happens. The worst they can tell me is no. And a couple months later, or a couple weeks later, um, I got the email saying that I was approved, that I was that my application was approved. Um, and that was in May. That's when I got my five year certification. And then in September, they sent out an email um, saying that the certification was actually updated to a lifetime certification. Whoa, that is awesome. Yeah. Did you get to see Dr. Bloom at the Cincinnati conference? I did. I went to the appreciative advising, uh, advising community <laughs> and I had like a, the nerd that I am, I had the textbook with me that, uh, she authored. And I'm like, so can I be a complete nutter nerd and ask you to sign this? And she's like, absolutely. She signed it. And then at the end, I'm like, okay, can I nerd out even more and ask to get a picture taken with you? And she's like, absolutely. <laughs> so Dr. Bloom is a delight and a half. Oh, uh, so goodness. I posted on my social media. I'm like, I got to meet Dr. Bloom. And <laughs> here's why this is really cool. So it was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. So Dr. Bloom was the keynote for Region 9's conference. I think it was 20s. 18 it was in santa rosa california um yeah. and she was the keynote and it was like one of the most amazing keynotes i mean uh, i mean nakata is great with picking their keynotes but jenny balloon was amazing mm -hmm. and and i always remember uh one of the things that she was talking about was you know when you are in your office it's like do you have things that relate to you do you have things that relate to the university and she said, when was the last time you actually sat where your students sit mm -hmm. and what do they see? And I never thought about that. Mm -hmm. And when I got back to the office, I sat where my students sat and I realized this chair is very uncomfortable and <laughs> got a new chair. Um, thankful, thankful for budget during that time, we were able to get something. And then also I just looked around and I was like, okay, where my students see things, it's like blank walls, like there's nothing. So I went to the bookstore, got some uh, CSUSB swag, a pennant to put on the wall. And then I was like, let me bring some stuff from home. Like it just felt like it was like this uh, hospital room, you know, just very yeah. <laughs> basic. Um, and so I was like, let me personalize it. And, you know, such a small little thing, but can really make a big difference. And I think that's also led to some great conversations with, with some of my students uh, when they see some of the like pop culture stuff and things like that. Um, although I may have too much stuff in my office, I might need to get rid of it because we need to get back about talking about advising and, and their classes. But yeah, I mean, awesome, awesome um, uh, keynote that she did. And I saw her a couple of times at the conference, but then as I was going to walk up and, you know, say, Hey, you know, I'm a big fan. Then there's like someone else that walked up and then they had a conversation. I was like, okay, let me go the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I actually, speaking of like, what do students see when they walk into your office? I actually pulled students into my office. It was like, Hey, what does my office say about me? What do you think of my office? That type of thing. And they flat out told me. So 
when they walk into my office, they can obviously tell that I'm a Disney fan. So like right over my shoulder, like I have a BR guest sign from Beauty and the Beast and I have the Powerline poster from a Goofy movie. I also have one from uh, the Disney movie Hercules on my other wall. And so students are able to tell that stuff about me. And I've actually been told I have one of the most comfortable set of chairs on campus for an office. So I'm like, okay, that works. <laughs> yeah, that probably means students are like, I want to go see Josh and just hang out and just chat. Yeah. <laughs> And then you also have a a love for uh, Funko Pops as well, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> I've, I've been told it, it's it's an obsession. Yeah, I, I've seen some of your posts, and then I'm like, "Yep, I, I totally get it." Um, they they do a great job with getting all the nostalgic feel. Oh yeah, and back from like childhood, and it's like, I don't need it, but I feel like I need it, and it's I'm really just, nice. you know. Here, here's my money. Just take it. <laughs> <laughs> See, I've had family members say that they just don't get it. And I'm like, you know what? It's not for you to get. Right. If this is for me. Also, I could be spending my money on worse things. So if I want to spend money on the 50th anniversary Mickey Mouse Funko Pop, which is being delivered today, <laughs> I'm going to do so. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I was one when they originally came out. I'm like, this is the stupidest thing. Like. Mm-hmm. Who wants these? And I bought my first one, and then a second one, and then the third one. And now I have I have all these extra ones. I have no room for it, so now I need to like kind of like cycle them out. But do you have it? Do you have any in your office that students uh, see as well? I have one. So I have the uh, Mickey Mouse Jungle Cruise Funko Pop. Um, I did have a couple other ones in my office. The um, if you've seen the movie Inside Out, all the different emotions. Uh, because a student heard that I love Funko Pops and she decided to go out of her way to buy me that set. So <laughs> it was a very nice gift. I it, I was very surprised and delighted by it. Um, so it was, like I said, just as a thank you because it was a very stressful time and I have an open door policy with my office. I'm like, hey, if you ever just want to come in and chill and listen to like Disney music or Broadway show tunes, I got you. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a thank you, they were like, Hey, here you go. I'm like, oh, I was <laughs> not expecting this. Um, so I had those in my office for a little bit, but when I moved up here, um, from Youngstown in 2017, I had like seven, mm-hmm. I now have 312. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Way more than I have. I thought I had a lot. But it just also just shows you how many Funko Pops they have made. <laughs> well, when they updated the app, it had like their entire catalog on it. There's like 23,000 things under the Funko umbrella. So when my coworkers or friends or family are like, you know what? You have too many of these. I'm like, hey, I have. This is how many I have. Here's how many has been released. I'm not that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, whether it's Funko Pops and, and playing Disney music, um, you know, Disney things on the wall. Did you think like this could be a great way to connect with my students and kind of incorporate that into academic advising? So when I first got to my office, I wanted to try and decorate it in a way that allowed students to see a little bit more about me rather than me just having the obligatory degrees on my wall, which I have that stuff too. Um, but I didn't want my office to be just that. Um, 
So I ha also have like all my textbooks from my undergrad from what I studied and same with grad school. Um, I also have like some little personal mementos that I got um, just growing up. Um, also, both of my grandfathers were in the military. So I actually have a copy of their military photos uh, in my office with a patch and a button from their uniforms. So unfortunately, my grandfathers are no longer with us. So that's a also a nice little tribute to them. So I tried to um, pull things into my office and be like, okay, what could be a conversation starter with students to try and break the ice a little bit before we start having um, advising conversations? Yeah. And do you find that that's worked for the most part with a lot of your students? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's also a great way, like, you know, we're talking about your grandfather's nice way to honor them as well. Um, so, you know, not not just having, you know, the pop culture stuff, but then also having things that, you know, are personal with family as well. So that's that's really nice. Now, we were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, Dr. Bloom meeting her at the Cincinnati conference. So let's talk. Let's dive into the Nakata Annual Conference. I was in Cincinnati. Now, for you, this was your first professional conference ever, right? It was. And how was so it? So exciting. Yeah. So I, when I first was approved to do, uh, do my registration, I couldn't stop talking about it. Like, I'm so excited. It's only this much longer until I'm able to go. Like, I was a kid in the candy, like getting ready to go to the zoo, candy store insert exciting thing here. <laughs> um, so I'm sure my coworkers were excited to be like, okay, he's finally gone. We can finally stop hearing about it. Um, but they were also all very excited for me because they knew how anxious and excited I was with it. And I know when I was planning out the sessions that I wanted to go to, I'm like, okay, what type of experience do I want to have? So I went through all the sessions, found what spoke to me with that. And then while at the conference, I heard speakers that I'm like, you know what? I want to meet this person and at least introduce myself, say hi, and get to know them. So I made sure I took the time to find an opportunity to meet uh, Dr. Melinda Anderson, who is so much fun. Like, as soon as she did her speech, I'm like, I want to be her friend. Um, so she was a lot of fun. Then also Dr. Kyle Ross. Um, I ran into him and we talked about community theater. A little bit because that was mentioned uh in the welcome uh on the first day so i'm like okay these are people that i want to meet so i made sure that i found the time to go out and meet them also joan who is amazing so there were i think they said there were like 1400 no, yeah 1400 people um, in person at the conference and i know i kind of stick out like a sore thumb because i'm almost seven foot tall but every time I saw her, she was just like, hey, Josh, how's it going? Like, how are you enjoying yourself? That type of thing, which I know she's super busy doing five million other things. But her just saying a simple hello and remembering my name, like made me feel great. So those opportunities were really cool to have. And we're talking about Joan from the executive office. I believe she's with the executive office. Yeah, so she was so, at the check-in registration table yeah. um, most of the time. And then we saw her running around. Oh, yeah. No, um, yeah. So that that's probably a Joan Krush. Uh, amazing, amazing person. And yeah, for someone to you know, be checking in all these individuals and then remember your name and see you later and you know, still remember your name, I think that just, one, shows what a great memory that, that she has. But then 
also like just the attention to detail and making it very personal uh, for the attendees there. And so, yeah, so shout out to Joan for that. And you're mentioning uh, Melinda and Kyle. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if, you know, anyone that has said anything negative about them. It's like everything is always positive with, with those individuals, which is great because they're Nakata leaders. And mm -hmm. yeah, they are just such a joy to chat with and they're so full of knowledge and they make you feel special, you know, and I think that's, that's, what's great about them. And they make you feel proud to be part of, of Nakata of that organization. Now it was your first professional um, conference that, that you went to, but also for Lake Erie, it was the first time they were represented in a sense, right? Yeah. So this was uh, our first time being represented at annual conference. So that was a really cool experience to be able to represent my institution with that. It's like, especially with us being, so small, just getting our name out there and just having fun with that as well. Yeah. So I'm sure your colleagues were just excited for you to go, but then also it's like, Hey, our college is, is being represented and hopefully that that's a continued thing, uh, both at region conferences at annual, maybe at the international conference at, at some point um, in Nakata Institute, there's always something that Nakata has that um, your college can, can be part of. So that's really great. And, Speaking of the conference, you know, you took advantage of being able to attend a lot of the sessions. Do any of them stand out as ones that that you went to that you're like, this was great. I can take something back to my institution or I learned a lot to grow professionally. So some of my favorite ones that I attended that were like the first ones that I put on my agenda through the app uh, was the what happened was uh, the power of storytelling uh, presented by uh, Jesse Rosenberg. Uh, traveling the hero's journey with our exploratory students with Matthew Eng, and then the zero inbox advising with uh, Katie Mosier. So those were the ones that were some of the first ones that I put um, on my agenda, just based off of the description. And then I certainly was not disappointed whenever I went to the sessions themselves. So it was really cool to go to those. And I really like sessions that make me laugh. I'm a goofy, odd person. I, my students call me that. I'm like, yes, I am. So um, when we can just have that laid back, have fun, laugh type of presentations, I'm all for it. So I'm glad that those ones that were the, some of the first that I put on my agenda were ones that I was able to laugh and chuckle and just have a good time with. Nice. And if anything, too, a lot of those sessions were either pre-recorded before the conference or recorded at the conference. And so you can probably find those on the Nakata app if you did attend, whether it was virtual or in person. So I believe they said it's available for like the 45 days. So I think that'll go. I to think the they said to the beginning of December. Yeah. So yeah. I think I'm definitely going to try and watch, rewatch a couple of those. Mm -hmm. um, I've also sent a couple of them to um, a couple of the sessions that I attended to coworkers because mm -hmm. I was because some of my coworkers I went over my schedule with. They're like, oh, that sounds really interesting. This sounds really interesting. So I'm like, hey, in case you're interested, here you go. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's a great way too, especially like if it's any institution where maybe they, they're only able to send one person or two, mm -hmm. two individuals. It's like as much as, yeah, you want to be able to attend sessions that relate to what, what you want to do or you want to learn or, or you know what responsibilities you have in the office. It's like, well, what else is out there that, could relate to one of my colleagues, you know, that 
they didn't get to go, but maybe they can benefit from a session. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great way to just kind of look at it from all, all viewpoints and help out. I mean, because that's kind of one of the goals, right? As you attend the conference, can you bring anything back to your institution and help your students, you know, whether it's a policy change or just how you interact with your students, there's always something that, that can be learned from those conferences. And I guess speaking of takeaways, you know, were there any takeaways that you had from, from the conference? So the biggest takeaway that I had was trying to make academic advising as fun as possible, making it an enjoyable experience for our students. Um, Cause I think it's, I think academic advising, yes, it is a professional experience. We should be able to, making it a professional experience for our students and encourage students to try and use it as like their first professional meeting to relate it to what they're going to have in their future and their future careers. However, with me, I want to also try and make academic advising as fun as possible. So I think that was really solidified when I was at the conference and some of the takeaways that I took away um, is just making it a really fun, cool, enjoyable experience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. And yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's kind of like, how do you make advising fun? You know, how do you get the students as engaged as possible? And I think, yeah, you found great takeaways from the conference, but I think you're already doing a lot of great things already yourself with your students where, Hey, they, they want to see you all the time. So I think you, you got something going on there. And I guess for future conferences, you know, this was your first experience at a professional at an advising conference. There's going to be, you know, region conferences next year, annual conference next year. Maybe there's an international conference next year. So for those that are continuing to plan for these conferences, do you have any advice for them as they plan next year's conference and beyond? Like whether it's what was great that probably should stay or things that you might think might want, they might not think of in terms of changing. So I think a really important thing when people, when you're planning a conference, whether it be annual, international, or um, the regional conferences is going to end up being if you were attending this conference, not knowing anything, what would you want to get out of the experience and trying to offer opportunities um, like that throughout the conference itself. Um, so I think it's just important to put yourself in the shoes of the people that you're going to be serving in a way. Um, and put yourself in that situation and then try to build everything up from there. And also with the city that we're in, what do like, what makes that city, that city and how can we incorporate that um, into the conference experience? Um, Cause I know during this year's annual conference in Cincinnati, a lot of us, we did trips to Fountain Square, um, which Grater's ice cream, fantastic. Um, so we did trips throughout the city itself. I know a bunch of people posted pictures that they walked the bridge that I think goes into Kentucky. So incorporating those types of things into the conference, um, for people to enjoy. Um, so I know that I am an Ohio native, but there are some things about Cincinnati that I didn't know. Um, so maybe something, um, to consider for future conferences is, throwing out there for attendees to be like, hey, here's what makes the city the city. We recommend visiting XYZ and giving them the opportunity with that because that can also tie in the local businesses, the mom and pop shops, and try and get them 
um, more in, involved in the conference itself because, like we said earlier, there were 1,400 people uh, live in, in person in Cincinnati. And I think they said, like, what, 13, 14 countries were represented. Um, so tying in those shops and restaurants and that type of thing that are in the city kind of puts it out on the global level as well, because not everybody is going to be able to have those experiences when they go back home. So I think that's something to keep in mind with future conferences if you're planning them. Absolutely. No, that's fantastic advice. And for next year's annual conference, we'll be in Portland. So I think that's something great is to, yeah, implement a lot of well, what is Portland? You know, what's the history behind Portland? Um, even how advising has been done in Oregon and specifically mm -hmm. in Portland. And yeah, maybe a lot of the different shops. I mean, they're known for coffee and donuts and a lot of great food. So, you know, a lot of travelers want to know what's the nice spots and to go to. So I think there's a lot we can do and maybe some um, some videos maybe leading up to the conference kind of highlighting a lot of that. So, you know, I, I appreciate that. And speaking of Portland, I think you're planning to go to Portland, but you haven't traveled that far west, right? Yeah, I haven't. If I remember correctly, I haven't traveled further west than Indiana. So with me being in Ohio, it's not that far. <laughs> so uh, I'm really excited to be able to go and just be able to say, hey, I went all the way across the country um, for that. And also, if I'm ever blessed enough to be able to go to one of the global conferences, I would love to be able to do that because my only international experience is going to Niagara Falls on the Canada side. So, yeah, so hopefully that's in the cards for the future as well. <laughs> yeah, cross my fingers for you on, on that, uh, for sure, for Portland, because that'll be the next one. But yeah, international cards, I think, are fantastic. Uh, I've only been to one. I've been to the one in, in Belgium, and that was in 2019. And was so looking forward to Greece, and then it got canceled and became a virtual conference. But I would have loved to have yeah. went. I'm a big Greek mythology nerd, so being able to go to Greece would have been <laughs> would have been fantastic. Well, maybe they'll ha maybe they'll have it again, or actually have it for for the first time, I guess, <laughs> one of these years, and then you can go. Yeah, I was all planned. I was going to go to like Santorini, and then yeah. But let's talk about mythology, you know, as, as we kind of wind down with this conference. Has that been an interest of yours for like many years, like as a kid? Or how did that start? So my gateway to mythology was the Disney movie Hercules. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, ooh, this is really cool. Let me read more about it. So I started reading Greek mythology in third grade. So as soon as I was approved to be able to go to that section of the elementary school library, I'm like, that's where I'm going to be. Then I realized Greek mythology is nothing like the Disney movie. So that was quite the shock for me. But I just never stopped reading it. So I just found it really interesting. So the librarians, because I also went to a very small school, K through 12 is still one building. Uh, my graduating class was 53 people and we were one of the bigger classes. So we all knew each other. So the librarians, they always knew like, okay, Josh is going to go directly for the Greek mythology books. I read the same books like 25 times. Um, by the time I was in junior high or early high school, when we were able, when we were reading the Odyssey in our English class, I had already read it like four or five times beforehand. So some of my classmates were coming up to me like, what did we just read? I'm like, okay, here's what happened. And just trying to explain it in a way that my peers were able to understand. So Greek mythology has been 
a big part of my life since third grade. I've since expanded to other mythologies such as Roman, which is pretty similar to Greek, um, Egyptian, Norse. I eventually want to get into Native American, Aztec, Mayan, a little bit of everything, um, at least to have that baseline foundation. So, um, which that's why I really enjoyed going to the session about the, that talked about the hero's journey um, that Matt presented because it, the hero's journey you can find in mythologies and also other stories because he showed the beginning of a video that was like, what does Harry Potter, uh, Katniss Everdeen from the Hunger Games and Frodo from the Lord's, Lord of the Rings, what do they all have in common? And it talked about uh, the hero's journey and how it relates to mythology and all, but also how it relates to pop culture. Um, so that's why I really enjoyed going to that session because one of the handouts talked about the Odyssey. Um, so yeah, mythology has always been a big part of what I've been interested in reading. Um, I also read a bunch of fantasy stuff, which stems from the mythology, the mythological point of everything. So it's always been a fun and exciting thing. Well, maybe there's a future presentation proposal that you maybe. can do on that. So maybe I have been thinking about presenting next year. So maybe that will uh, make an appearance. Yeah, maybe for Portland. I I, I think uh, proposals open up in December. So something to, to, to consider. <laughs> <laughs> and then also just speaking of like mythology and, uh, and its connections, you know, with advising Matt's presentation, uh, someone else you might want to connect with is uh, Dr. Peter Hagen. Um, so, yeah, so... Yep. Wait, he was wrote the narrative storytelling one, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I met him briefly. Yes. So he was in Matt's session with the hero's journey. Um, and I actually ended up buying his book on narrative storytelling in academic advising. So right after um, I was like, Hey, can I get your signature on your book? And he was like, absolutely. And he seemed to be completely baffled that I even asked. So just in that brief conversation, I could tell he was a really cool guy. And I'm really excited to get to the point to be able to read his book. Yeah, and it's nice. It's, I mean, it's seven chapters. Um, I think it's when you get to chapter six, it, I think it, he does something very cool with it. Um, mm -hmm. So I won't spoil it, but you'll see. <laughs> but no it basically, Yeah, but it ties <laughs> in. Marvel yeah. movie. Don't talk it, about it. it. It ties in chapters one through five very nicely in, in a great way. So um can't wait to talk to you about that later yeah. uh, when you do read it. And then as we uh, finish up, I mean, one of the things, too, is like you do a lot of theater, uh, whether it's performing at local community theaters or attending a lot of the performances. Talk about that. So I'm a big advocate for self-care. It's something that I'm constantly preaching to my students that, that you have to take care of yourself. So um, community theater, performing um, and then also attending live theater, whether it be community theater or going to Playhouse Square um, in downtown Cleveland, Ohio. That's kind of my self-care outlet. Um, so I've been in two theater productions um, since moving up here to the Cleveland area. In 2018, I was in Shrek the Musical. Um, and then in 2019, I was in the show Anything Goes. Uh, 2020, we were supposed to do Beauty and the Beast, but there's this magical thing called a global pandemic that kind of put an, a halt to that. Um, so that's been pushed back um, to 2022. 
So this year we're just, we're doing a dinner theater fundraiser to um, raise money for, to do Beauty and the Beast. So, which I'll actually be performing in that. So it's pretty cool. It's like a little showcase of different uh, musical numbers. So I'm really cool. It's uh, really exciting to do. Nice. And you mentioned anything goes. So my mind, I first think of is Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom. with, with that <laughs> song. <laughs> But I think this is a fantastic interview. And I, and I feel like I, I know so much more. And I'm glad that, you know, we got we got to use this to talk more versus yeah. like the couple minutes that we had at the poster session yeah. um, at the conference. But if anyone wants to reach out to you, you know, they want to talk more about your role um, at your college or they want to chat about pop culture, how can they reach out to you? So you can reach me via email. So my email address is J Road. So my last name, so J L I and as a Nancy E R O D E um, at lec.edu. Um, so yeah, shoot me an email anytime. All right. Sounds good. All right. I'm sure we'll be chatting soon. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast today, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Josh, it was great connecting with you on social media through our advising podcast Instagram account, getting to meet you at the annual conference in Cincinnati, and getting to do this interview with you. You've been doing a lot of great work at your institution, and you have a lot of advising projects coming up. So best to you on that. That will do it for us for episode 46. Check us out on our YouTube channel at Adventures in Advising. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. Until next time, life is full of opportunities. And there's plenty of opportunities in academic advising and within Nakata. Thanks for listening and keep advising. Take care. Don't want a complication. 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 Complication.